finished last week with God's reminder to his people not to make any golden idols or gods. So no prizes for guessing what's going to happen in today's chapter. Now, in addition to the top 10 laws God gave Moses last week, there were heaps of footnotes, subclauses, and addressing of what-ifs for the worship and community rules. Now, this takes a whole 12 chapters, lots of up and down the mountain, and also a 40 days, 40 nights stint thrown in for good measure. So when the people saw how long it was taking for Moses to return with stone tablets, they gathered around the 2IC younger brother, Aaron. Hey, Aaron, they said, Moses seems to have gone missing. How about we make us some gods who can lead us instead? Aaron seemed to think this was a good idea. So he gathered everyone's gold earrings, melted them down, and molded it into the shape of, you guessed it, a calf. When the people saw it, they were pretty pumped and diverted their affection to it by saying, these are the gods who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Now, Aaron saw how easy it was to get people to like his leadership style. So he went the extra mile and built a big altar for the golden calf. He then doubled down and announced that the next day would be a public holiday. So the people got up early the next morning and embraced the festival with enthusiasm, sacrificing burnt offerings and peace offerings before the calf. After the boring stuff, they really got into the spirit of things and celebrated with feasting and drinking and lots of activities that we'll call pagan revelry. Now the Lord obviously knew what was going on and told Moses, you'd better get down the mountain. Your people have corrupted themselves. They've already turned away from our sacred agreement. They've made a gold calf, bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. They're now saying it's their new God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. These people are stubborn and rebellious. You'd better leave so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I'm going to wipe them out. But Moses tried to find favour on behalf of his people. O Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt? Turn away from your fierce anger. Please change your mind about this terrible disaster you've threatened. Getting a bit desperate, Moses brings up the Lord's own words. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about wiping out all the Israelites. So Moses turned and went down the mountain. He held in his hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the sacred agreement, the words written on them by God himself. When he came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. He dealt with the agreement first. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He dealt with the calf next. He melted it, ground it into powder, mixed it with water, and forced the people to drink it. He then dealt with his 2IC, Aaron, and demanded, What did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? And Aaron goes straight to defence mode. Don't get so upset, my lord, he says. You yourself know how evil these people are. 
When they brought their gold to me, I simply threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Moses realised that his 2IC Aaron had let the people get completely out of control. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, All of you who want to keep the sacred agreement with the Lord, come here and join me. And so all the descendants of the Levi tribe came and gathered around him. So things seemed pretty bad at this point for the new nation of Israel. However, this next bit is going to get even worse for them and maybe for even for us today as we try to understand God's nature. Perhaps this calf worship was such a massive deal breaker, God needed to suspend the community rules about killing. So Moses told the people who'd come over to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each of you take your swords and go from one end of the camp to another and kill each of your brothers, friends and neighbours. The Levites obeyed Moses' command and about 3,000 people died that day. And Moses considered the Levites to have earned a blessing for this act. The day after the killings, Moses said to the people, You've committed a terrible sin with this golden calf business. But I'll go back up to the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. The Lord agrees to hang in there with Israel, but sent a great plague upon the people because they had worshipped the calf Aaron had made. See you next week. Thanks, Peter. I, I look forward to hearing your storytelling every week. I think it's, uh, it's incredible. Thank you, Peter. Um, about 10 years ago, I was studying to be a physio, uh, and I had this amazing opportunity. The university encouraged us to go on what they called a global elective. It's where we would jump on an aeroplane and, and go somewhere else in the world and practice our physio and, and explore different parts of the world. Can you remember when we could just jump on a plane and go somewhere? Like, it seems so foreign to us today in this world we're in. But anyway, I reached out to a friend of mine who was at a local aid organisation, and he put me in touch with a Canadian physio up in Kundiawa, which is in the highland provinces of Papua New Guinea. And I organised it. I planned this thing. I booked my flights. Two weeks before I was due to fly out, I get an email from this Canadian physio. His dad has had a major stroke back in Canada, and he's jumped on a plane and flown back to Canada. And here I am going, I'm about to go up into this wilderness and you're the safe person, you're the only person I know. But he says that there's a local physio, a Papua New Guinean man named Joe, and he'll meet me off the plane and he'll show me where I need to go. Joe didn't even have a phone. I didn't have a way of contacting Joe. But Joe was going to meet me. So I took off into the jungle wilderness. I flew on my own to Brisbane and then on to Port Moresby where I stayed for a couple of days waiting for this rickety plane that was going to take me into the, the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And I got off the, off the plane. The only white guy there, I felt so out of place. And uh, Joe found me. He met me there. And, and took me to the accommodation that they'd organised and, and got me settled in. But gradually over the next week or so, things went downhill. 
I learned pretty quickly that the accommodation that I had had a cockroach infestation. There were cockroaches everywhere in the cupboards, the shower, the bathroom, everywhere. And then I got sick. I had trouble holding down my food and water. And I gradually realized and started getting concerned for my safety, even walking down the street during the middle of the day. It went downhill. One day I, I returned to my accommodation and I was absolutely shocked to find a man in the shower. The, the accommodation, the, the hospital had thought, oh, there's a second room in that accommodation. We could probably rent that out and get a little bit more money. Nobody had told me. I just came home and there was a man in my shower. It felt so out of control. It felt like this safe place, this safe space, this one place that I could go to, to, to find that security had been taken away from me. And I remember sitting on the grass outside the hospital, crying, tears literally falling down my face and saying, God, this is so out of control. Have you ever felt life get out of control? I felt life get out of control then, and I think I feel like over the last year or two, I've often felt like life's been a bit out of control. Today we're continuing the story of Moses and the Israelites and their journey out of Egypt. And in their story, in their journey, they so often felt like their story was out of control. Let's start with a bit of a recap. Let's jump back to the start of the story. I'd love to, this is session five of this series. I'd love to jump back to the start of the story and recap what's happened so far. So the story began in Egypt and the Israelites were under the burden of slavery. They were slaves to the Egyptians and it was hard work and they cried out and groaned and they cried to God in chapter two. And God responds and sends plagues and things like that. He uses his power to deliver his people, to get them out of there. And the story goes on and they're on the run and they're, um, they're on the run out of Egypt. And Pharaoh changes his mind and says, actually, I'll let these slaves go, but I want them back now. And he, he chases after them and, and the Israelites feel so unsafe. And so in chapter 14, they cry out and complain to God, we should have stayed. And God hears their complaints and shows up. He parts the sea and finds a way for them to get away. And then they enter the wilderness and they get thirsty. They come across this oasis of water, but it's so bitter they can't drink it. And so they complain again and God shows up and makes that water drinkable. And then they get hungry and they complain about how they had food in their pots back in Egypt. And God in chapter 16 shows up and brings food from heaven for them. And then they get thirsty again and, and God shows up and he creates water pouring out of a rock. And then God shows up when they get to the mountain called Sinai. And God arrives on the top of the mountain like this cloud that sits there with thunder and lightning. And, and it's amazing. They can see the presence of God and this cloud stays there. And he says to them, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the Lord. 
And he gives them ten commandments or ten rules to live by and draws them into, if you want to live my way, this is the way you will get full life. You see, there's this cycle where they have fears and worries and they complain and then God shows up and God provides. God provides safety and security. God provides food and water. God provides freedom. These are our basic human needs. These are the, the things that, uh, like uh, I've been learning recently about Maslow. He's this uh, psychologist who created this hierarchy of needs. That the most fundamental core needs that God is providing for his people. And today's complex story of golden idols and God's anger that Peter so greatly read, thank you, highlights one more core human need, one more basic human need. And so I invite you to grab your Bible now. I invite you to open it up to Exodus. It's the second book, so it's right near the start, to chapter 32. Maybe it's an app on your phone and you're going to open that up too. And and I encourage you to follow along as we explore this story. So let's dive in. When when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come down back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Now Aaron's like the two I see. That's Moses' second in charge. And they say, come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this man, Moses, who brought us here from the land of Egypt. What was their complaint? Make us some gods who can lead us. We need a God who can lead us. You see, when it comes to trust, actions speak louder than words. But what's crazy is that the Israelites had seen plenty of action Plagues, seas parted, food and water brought out in the wilderness. God arrives on the top of the mountain with smoke and lightning and thunder and cloud and is all powerful. I've stood in front of a pool of water and asked, Hey God, will you make a ripple in that water? Just so that I know that you're there. And had nothing. Now these Israelites had seen over and again, times where God has provided for their basic needs. But they struggled to trust him. We keep reading. Then Aaron took the gold. So this is the gold, their earrings. They got collected all of their gold and brought it to Aaron. Then Aaron took this gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Now, Aaron saw how excited they were, and so he built built an altar to God and, and declared that the next day would be a festival to Yahweh, that tomorrow will be a festival to Yahweh. Wait, what? Now, now this is strange. On one hand, they make a calf and say, this is God. This calf, it's a symbol of other local gods, the Canaanite gods of strength and virility. But on the other half, they still want to celebrate and have a festival to Yahweh. They want to worship a calf. 
and claim that the, this calf brought them out of Egypt. Hang on, they just made the calf. How did the calf bring them out of Egypt? But they want to worship and celebrate and thank Yahweh. In fact, it's not like they're denying God and taking a new God, but rather that they're replacing him. Saying this Yahweh, this God of cloud and thunder and mystery, we don't have a handle on him. We don't know what he's doing. Where is he? He's clearly powerful, but we don't know what he's up to. We can't guess what he's doing. But if I could just contain him, if I could just bottle him up and put him over there, then I can know what he's up to. Then I can be sure of what he's doing and where he is, and I can get on with my life. Ash, you shared a brilliant story with us of your life, of how you at one moment put God over to the side and said, actually, I think I'm better doing it my way. And if I just leave you over there, if I just put you over there, then I can just get on with finding the the good things in life. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for sharing how God took your life and, and God re-changed you and you had that 180 flip. It's such an amazing story that you have. And I know many people who have this story. So the story goes on with the Israelites and, and God gets angry next. It's, the next bit shapes up a bit like a court case on the mountainside. See, Moses has gone up the mountainside and he's talking with God. And the next bit shapes up a little bit like uh, God accusing of all the people and, and Moses, the defender. Um, and, and Moses stands before a very angry God. Now, Troy last week shared with us how uh, God had just provided these Ten Commandments, these rules to live by for, for you to all get on with me in community and to find good life. And one of those rules was that there was to be no idols of any kind. You see, God doesn't want to be known as a calf, as the calf God. He doesn't want to be known as a dog or a bird or a rabbit. God wants to be known as the God of love, as the God of compassion and kindness, of mercy, not an inanimate or unmoving object. He wants to be known as alive and at work. If we look back to the creation story, the first bit of the Bible, Genesis 1, we see that it describes that God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. You see, there's this notion that humanity, we all, play this role in showing the world what God is like. We play the role in showing the world his image. A helpful way of understanding this is the example of an angled mirror. Let me just grab this. I thought this would be really fun, actually, for a moment, because actually at home you get to see me, but you don't get to see everybody else. So you can see we've got Yvonne there, if I angle that really well. Whoop, there we go, Yvonne and the camera, and we come across and we've got Nick over there with all his sound gear, doing a great job. Anyway, so this, this, the best way to, I can do to explain this is that actually this idea of an angled mirror, that... Um, it seems that God has put humans into his world like an angled mirror so that 
God can reflect through us, through people, his love and care for humanity and creation. And that the rest of the world can see as they look at God's people, they get an idea of what God is like. This idea that we play a role in showing the world what God is like. When humans step into God's leadership and act boldly for loving others, selflessly act in kindness and mercy and justice, that we reflect into the world around us, God, what he's like. That's how God wants to be known. Not as a calf that can't move or breathe or do anything. He wants us to walk in his ways and follow his leading. He wants us to walk this walk that requires us to take a step towards him. A step of trust. And so here we have God angry on the mountainside. He's bringing Moses up to speed about what his people are doing down the mountain. And Moses says the most outlandish thing you could ever imagine in that moment. Standing in front of God with smoke and power, he actually says something that is so crazy. He says, why are you so angry? I mean, isn't it obvious? Like... They have done exactly what God said not to do. They have belittled him. They've domesticated him into this small thing. They've put him over in the corner and got on with whatever revelry is, drinking and who knows what else. They've abandoned these things that God said, if you just live by these ways, then I'll be able to live with you and help you into a fullness of life. But what's actually fascinating is that it works. Like, what? This actually works. That God actually, who who was angry, actually his anger fades away and is appeased. How do we understand that? Well, this question is not as simple as it first seems. This question, why are you so angry? See, in the Hebrew language, they have two words for our word why. One is looking into the past, it's scientific, it's why did you do that? What are the elements and things that lead to you doing that? The other Hebrew word is one looking forwards. It's more like a for what purpose are you so angry? This word why is the second one. For what purpose, God, are you angry? You see, God uses this little court case on the mountainside to reaffirm and bring back that he has a plan. He has a plan to take a broken world with struggle and heartache and and to transform it for good. And that he involves us in that plan. He wants to partner with humanity. He's got a plan that involves transforming the world for good with us. And all he asks is that we trust his leadership. But that can be hard. It can be really hard. Maybe you've been hurt before. Maybe your life has encountered struggle that is so real 
that it seems like God's actions don't seem very loud. I know. Years ago, I'm going to get emotional here. Um, Years ago, I lost a friend from school. And soon after, I lost my four-year-old cousin. Both of them sudden and unexpected. And I wrestled with God. How? Why? As we look at this Exodus story, we can observe a trend that we can learn from when it's hard to take that step. You see it first in their slavery. The Israelites cried out to God in Exodus 2. They groaned and cried out to him. And then when they're on the run and feeling unsafe, they cried out to Yahweh. They complained to Moses in Exodus 14. But when they entered the wilderness, they complained to Moses. And Moses took their complaints to God. And when they were hungry, they didn't even complain to Moses. They just complained about him. And in this story, on the mountainside, when they wonder, where is God? When they doubt and question, there is only silence from them. They jump straight to making an idol to make them feel better, to make them feel like they have more control. You see, it's normal in a journey of faith to have questions, to doubt, to wrestle. It's normal to have to cry out to God. There's this amazing book over here that Ali has, has lent me that, uh, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's by um, Peter Scazzaro. I encourage you to pick it up and read it. But in this book, he talks about a model that outlines the stages of faith that we go on. And I'm just going to bring that up for a second. He outlines how early on we, in faith, when we're new to it, we're just growing in awareness of God. But as we move around this circle, we, we then start to shape who we are more into God's likeness, this thing called discipleship. And as we do that, then actually we get more active in trying to transform the world for good. We partner with God. We, we get active in our relationship with God too. We, we grow in, in our, our closeness with God. But it is so often and normal that we hit a wall in our journey, that we hit struggle, that we hit pain and heartache in the world that we can't make sense of, that there is mystery And we actually have to journey through that wall. Others like Richard Raw have described this process of construction or deconstruction and then reconstruction that actually as we hit a wall, we need to actually reconstruct and rebuild our understanding of God. We must, when we hit that wall, we must anchor ourselves to God. We must press into him and bring our complaints and questions to him. We must ask the big questions. We can't sweep them under the rug. We mustn't forget 
why we gravitated to God in the first place. We must hold on to him. We can't give God the silent treatment when we hit the wall. What's the core need that this story highlights along with security and safety, food and water and perhaps freedom? What's the other core need? Our core need is that we need to meet God at the walls that life present us. We need to meet God in the struggles, the doubts and the questions as they come up. What about if we've wandered off? We've wandered away. What if we've made a calf or two and grabbed onto too much control in our life and not trusted God's leading? Not trusted in his way or that he's got a bigger plan that involves us? I want to read you something in Exodus 32. Towards the end of this story, Moses is back on the mountain with God. And he says this, Oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if, only for, if, only, if you will only forgive them their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. But the Lord replied to Moses, No, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Now go and lead the people to the place I told you about. And later he arrives and presents himself to Moses and says, This is who I am. He says, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love and to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, sin and rebellion. You see, God is a God of second chances and fresh starts and new beginnings. Maybe you need a fresh start. Ask him. He gives freely. It's who he is. It's what he wants to be known by. He loves freely, full of compassion and mercy. Reach out to God. Reach out to us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to journey with you in your fresh start. Maybe you're in a place like Ash was. And you need to do that 180 flip. Maybe you're at a wall, a struggle. All of us feel the struggle at the moment. Maybe you need to cry out and wrestle and complain and groan. Maybe you need to choose hope in this setting. Maybe you know somebody who's at a wall. Encourage them. Draw alongside them. Don't let them sit there alone. Or maybe you're at home and you need a nudge. How can you get involved in God's plan? He invites us. How can you transform the world with God, transform the world for good with God? Who can you show love and kindness, forgiveness and mercy to? Today, tomorrow, ongoing.
Let me leave you with this. May you know the God that is with you, the God of compassion, kindness, mercy, forgiveness. May you know him in the wilderness and the struggles of life. Thank you.